0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fisk All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy. Yes, Mike is back from vacation. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Uh, He is very thankful that I kept my promise and did not bother him while he was gone. Um, What's that? No, Okay, he's correcting me. It's not that he is thankful. He does not mind being bothered. It's that his girlfriend is thankful. I did not bother him, and therefore he is thankful. Isn't that like the associative property? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Regardless, either way, I'm glad your girlfriend is not mad at me, because the last thing I need is you having a a mad girlfriend. Uh, Folks, we have a lot to talk about on this particular podcast. I mentioned that we're going, this is just criminal justice fuckery, and that is it. There's nothing else in here, no politics, no Law 140, no interviews. Um, And this isn't even all of it, to be honest with you, because the outline is 25 pages long. And when it hit 25 pages, I thought, fuck's sake, this is just entirely too long for me to, to have the patience for. You know, I love all of you, but I don't love you that much. You know, my, my patience has limits. So I've given 25 pages worth of stuff, which is by far more stories than we're accustomed to having on the podcast. And the other like 30 things that I still haven't included, I'm going to work into future episodes that we will eventually have everything. Uh, it just is going to take a little while. So I also want to give a shout out to Spaceman Eddie. He is at Spaceman Ed on Twitter. He's the guy who came up with the title for this week's episode, uh, Beatdowns and Summary Executions, Winter Edition, because you're going to notice some themes in the things that we talk about. We probably should have added in Kitty Diddling as well, because you'll notice that's a theme also. Uh, But before we get into any of that stuff, as a reminder, if you missed last Thursday's episode with Dave and James, go listen to it. It's another lengthy podcast. It's about two hours long, but it's a rollicking good time about some of the political news that we missed. Uh, All of the prior podcast episodes have been corrected to have uh, proper episode numbers and links, so you'll notice... We'll be referring to episodes throughout this episode in the future so you can track particular stories. I'm trying to make it easier for people that use the podcast for research purposes. Uh, Join the conversation online. If you haven't yet, we are at Fiskamall on Twitter. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a comment on our website, you can go to fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, we need your support because it helps me pay Mike and pay for our hosting and stuff. Uh, Go become one of our patrons. Patreon, Go become one of our patrons on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash fsck. Even a dollar a month helps. If we had every subscriber give us a dollar a month we'd be able to do these twice a week and start throwing some videos on YouTube as well. So check that out. Uh, Okay, so here we go. I hope all of you are buckled in. Uh, Because of the sheer volume of stuff, I'm going to give you some details with each story, but I'm also going to speed through this relatively quickly because there's so much. So just know that there will be show notes for everything. So if you are using Apple Podcasts, uh, well, I guess there's a new Apple Podcast app, so they've changed it slightly, but you, you can either... Tap on the screen, if you're on the old version, or scroll up, uh, and you'll see links to our show notes where I have links for every single news story that we're going to talk about in this episode, and there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of them. Okay, here we go. First, in judicial news out of the Tenth Circuit, uh, apparently police shooting at a van full of innocent kids is now totally constitutional. Uh, In the ruling out of the Tenth Circuit, there was a case some time ago wherein Elias Montoya uh, was accused of violating the rights of an Oriana Farrell. So the case is Farrell versus Montoya. Uh, This is based out of New Mexico, and essentially the state police pulled her over for speeding way back in October of 2013, uh, Farrell, who was from Tennessee, had been driving West on a road trip with her five children, ages six to 16. Of course, there's video of the incident because first rule of fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. Uh, apparently there's some exchange of words. Uh, Farrell is actually pulled out of the van and there's no real justification for it. So of course she panics. One of the kids gets out of the car and tries to get the officer off of her mother. Uh, Farrell gets back into the van. They go to drive off. Elias Montoya has he smashes out the rear window of the van using a I guess it's a tire iron I don't know uh, and then fires three shots at the car with the kids in it as she is driving off well the feral sued because it's kind of odd that you would have a police officer firing his gun at you when you don't have any weapons you're not a threat he's just shooting at you just because Uh, but the court of appeals said hey that is totally fine because the fact that they were driving off means that they were not seized within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. As part of the court's decision, they say, We hold that the district court should have granted the defendant's summary judgment motion because the shots did not halt the Farrell's departure. Because they were fleeing, they were not seized at the time Montoya fired his weapon, even if they had a subjective intent to submit to authority. As part of the uh trial court proceedings, what she said was that she meant to stop, but she wanted to make sure there was like bona fide police nearby instead of crazy people with guns shooting at her. Uh, the court continued, quote, in short, when Montoya fired at the van, the Farrells were fleeing. Though they had been seized moments before, that seizure ended when they no longer submitted to the officer's authority, and Montoya's shots themselves did not affect a seizure because the van continued its departure. The Farrell's alleged intent to submit when they could reach a police station was irrelevant because their conduct, the flight from the officers, did not manifest submission. As there was no seizure, there could be no unreasonable seizure, even if Montoya was using deadly force. The Farrell's claims against Montoya fail for lack of any violation of the Fourth Amendment. Now, the crazy part about this is if the guy had actually killed one of the kids by shooting at the van, then there would have been a claim under the Fifth Amendment for taking away someone's interest in life. I remember you have an interest in life, liberty, and property, deprived without due process. If that becomes a problem, you can sue. So had he actually hit somebody, they could have filed a Fifth Amendment claim. But because he missed, there's no claim at all under the Fifth or the Fourth Amendments. So this is basically just going to incentivize more police shooting at more random people. Once again, appellate justices simply don't understand how the impact of their rulings work out in practical terms. And that's not just the Tenth Circuit. It applies to the Supreme Court as well. So that is that. We will give you a copy of the court's decision in that case. In some general research news, so Mapping Police Violence has released their 2017 Police Violence Report. What they found was that police killed, shot and killed. So let me back up. Sorry, I apologize. I don't want to want to derail too off of this. Um, you'll notice when we talk about different entities that track people killed by police, you end up with different numbers and folks don't seem to understand why. So the Washington Post, the UK Guardian, mapping police violence, what these organizations are tracking are people who have been shot and killed by police. So they were dead, killed by gunfire. Vice tracks shootings, regardless of whether or not they result in death, and killedbypolice.net tracks all killings by law enforcement, regardless of if it involved a gun or not. So if you're shot to death, beat to death, run over by a cop, it doesn't matter. Killed by police tracks everything. So the Mapping Police Violence, their annual report, shows that 1,188 people were killed by police in 2017 as a result of gunshots. Only 12 officers were actually charged with a crime. That's 1% of the deaths, so they have a 99.89% Uh, or a 98.89% non-indictment rate. That's not even counting convictions because even fewer people get convicted. Uh, Of the deaths, 43 officers had shot or killed someone before. You have a lot of repeat offenders. 12 of those 43 had actually been involved in multiple prior shootings, 631 of the killings happened with police responding to a non-violent offense or where no crime at all had happened, things like welfare checks that we talk about a lot. Uh, 87 more were the result of a traffic stop, and this will come as a shock to all of you. Blacks were more likely to be killed, more likely to be unarmed when they were killed, and less likely to have been threatening the officers in any way whatsoever. Uh, Michael Harriet from The Root does have some takes on the story. In particular, he notes the the other sources of death in this country. Uh, He writes, More people died from police violence in 2017 than the total number of U.S. soldiers killed in action around the globe at 21. More died at the hands of police in 2017 than the number of black people who were lynched in the worst year of Jim Crow, 161, back in 1892. Cops killed more Americans in 2017 than terrorists did, four. They killed more citizens than airplanes, 13 worldwide, mass shooters, 428, and Chicago's top gangs, 675, all combined. That is your American law enforcement, USA. USA. Uh, speaking of statistics, there's good news out of New York City. So, New York City is now the safest that's pretty much ever been. Their crime rate has dropped dramatically overall. And this, of course, freaked out a lot of uh, so called conservatives, including one, Heather McDonald. Now, we've probably talked about Heather McDonald before. If I haven't, I, I regret that I've not brought her up previously. She's a nut. She's a fucking loon. I think I mentioned this in the interview with Dave and James. She's one of those thinly disguised racist racists that can somehow find any way to justify crime by pinning it on black people. And she's quick to throw out, you know, statistics and whatever else. She gets paid to go talk to these conferences where she blames black people and black culture for everything going on. Well, when these uh, new data from NYC came out, she actually wrote a column for National Review Online that the title is, Don't Draw the Wrong Lessons from NYC's reduction in crime. And her thesis as part of this column, essentially, is that the reason why crime in NYC has dropped uh, is because of segregation, that there's greater gentrification, more white people live in white neighborhoods, more black people live in black neighborhoods, and therefore crime drops because you don't have the evil blacks trying to attack the whites. Uh, And it's, it's funny because she got dragged all over Twitter, as she rightfully should have, because she completely fucks up the stats. New York City's crime dropped everywhere including in the segregated neighborhoods, but the neighborhoods with the biggest drop were in the integrated ones. So New York City in general is the least amount of white that it has been since it was colonized way back in the 1700s. The percentage of white people is less than ever before. There's a shitload of minorities, not just blacks, but people from other ethnicities. It's a huge melting pot. There's nearly a quarter million uh, refugees because New York City is a sanctuary city. So this whole theory that it's because of the whiteness of New York City, that's why the crime has dropped, is just complete and total bullshit, just utter fabrication that she's come up with, because she's fucking delusional. And this is the part that pisses me off about her, Ben Shapiro, the other, you know, facts don't care about your feelings conservatives. They're good at making that argument until data comes back that completely blows their fucking ideas, dashes their assumptions on the cold, sharp, jagged rocks of reality, And then when that happens, they either ignore the statistics, they downplay the statistics, or they do like Heather McDonald did here, just completely fuck it up and and screw it entirely. And that they still refuse to critically look at their theses uh, because it hurts their feelings when they decide to do so. So that is on the latest crime data involving police. We'll talk more about New York in a bit. Uh, Out of the Huffington Post... There's a story by Arthur Reiser of the R Street Institute. So the R Street Institute is a conservative think tank focused on a lot of issues, but among them is criminal justice reform. He's got a column out entitled, We Need to Stop Incarcerating Children for Status Offenses and Nonviolent Misdemeanors. Uh, He notes that one million children... Arrested every single year in this country, they get removed from school, separated from their families, thrown into detention facilities, merely for basic what we call status offenses, so running away, being a truant, skipping school, uh, which comprises more than half of the non-criminal court cases that happen. Uh, He notes, quote, many of the children involved in the juvenile court system have emotional or learning needs that are not being met. According to the Annie E. Casey Foundation, harsh conditions and invasive supervision inside detention facilities can exacerbate mental health symptoms for youth with serious emotional disturbances or a history of trauma or abuse. He continues, quote, contrary to the juvenile system's stated goal of rehabilitation, court involvement unnecessarily exacerbates underlying problems by delaying children's access to critical services. Additionally, the process of arrest, prosecution, and adjudication can easily damage relationships between children and the adults in their lives since they are often positioned as adverse parties in the proceedings. So, you give that link to your story so you can uh, talk about it. Speaking of children, The New Yorker has a long read on unaccompanied minors. So, these are Hispanic kids, other immigrant children who are caught between being exploited by gangs like MS 13 but they can't go to the police cuz they'll be deported so instead they just suffer with being you know exploited on a regular basis the wall street journal journal the wall street journal Uh, has an in-depth report on prosecutors who are now treating opioid overdoses as homicides, arresting friends and family. Uh, They talk about the story of Daniel Eckhart, says, quote, After Daniel Eckhart's corpse was found on the side of a road in Hamilton County, Ohio, last year, police determined he died of a heroin overdose. Not long ago, law enforcement's involvement would have ended there. But amid a national opioid addiction crisis fueling an unprecedented wave of overdose deaths, the investigation was just beginning. Detectives interrogated witnesses and obtained search warrants in an effort to hold accountable someone. Mr. Eckhart's death. The prosecutor for Hamilton County, which includes Cincinnati and its suburbs, charged three of Mr. Eckhart's companions, including his ex wife and her boyfriend, with crimes including involuntary manslaughter, an offense carrying a maximum sentence of 11 years. Now, why are they doing this? Because this is a stupid fucking policy. This is going to lead to more people dying rather than getting help. We've talked about that in a prior podcast. Uh, The explanation why is, quote, the deaths. That's why all the people dying. That's from Commander Thomas Fallon, who leads the task force. Quote, even in the cocaine and crack days, people didn't die like this. Now, if you are an avid listener, you might recall that that statement is false, that we actually have a same quantum of people dying from crack and cocaine as are dying from opioids. The difference is we don't care when they're black. Uh, Out of the Washington Post, Bradley Balco did a list of what he had called predictions for the new year. Uh, It's actually quite funny. Because I do this podcast, I knew the predictions were bullshit. It's actually stories from things that actually happened in the past year that he's framed as New Year's predictions. But I'm going to give it to you anyway because he's got a long list of criminal justice fuckery out of his column in The Washington Post called The Watch. Uh, John Pfaff, he's written several books about mass incarceration. Uh, He has a Twitter thread that's interesting on prison gerrymandering, which I did not know was a thing. But I guess it kind of makes sense in a very sadistic sort of way. So when we're doing redistricting for congressional districts, state legislative districts, whatever else, One concept that we have to deal with if you're a legislator is one person, one vote. So all the districts are supposed to be exactly equal size or as close as possible as you can get. Uh, And they don't count into they don't take into account whether or not the people are eligible voters. They only look at people, period. Uh, So as part of that, what FAF found is that in a lot of congressional districts, you have prisons that are in districts with Republican Congress critters. And the reason why is that a prison is where you have your felons. They're in prison for a year or more. If you're less than a year, you're in jail. And as a result of being a felon, you're not allowed to vote. Well, we know the system tends to target people of color. We know that people of color tend to be Democrats. So you can stick a heavily Democratic prison in a Republican district, and you know there will be zero votes cast from that prison. So it enables a a way of diluting Democrat representation in other districts, because you shove these Democrats into a Republican district, you can still honor the concept of one person, one vote, while taking Republican voters that you would normally stuff into that district to protect that incumbent, and instead shifting them over to other districts as a way of, uh, you know, spreading your influence. So I'll give you a link to that thread. It's very interesting. It's not something that I had considered. It's actually pretty fucking insidious. Uh, There's also a new study by researchers out of Portland State University, the University of Victoria, which I think is in Canada, uh, and Wayne State University. It's kind of depressing. Uh, So essentially what they do is they look at the empirical evidence of police protests throughout the 1960s and 70s. They compare that with the number of police killings of civilians over those same decades and see if there's any correlation. Uh, And what they found is, quote, The results clearly show that historical protest resulted in an increase in civilian deaths by legal intervention—that's killed by police—regardless of race in the short run, and a seemingly permanent increase in killings of non-white people over the medium to long-term run. So basically, when police get protested, they start killing everybody more often, and then they eventually stop killing the white people as much, but they continue killing the minorities— So we'll give you a link to that as well. It's a link to the extended abstract. The study that they actually have with all of the stuff is still considered preliminary. So I didn't want to give you the preliminary version until it's done. But if you got the abstract, you'll know how to find the final version when it comes out. Uh, Okay, so let's jump into federal news. The main story, of course, is Attorney General Beauregard. Uh, He's gotten rid of a lot of guidance from the Obama-era DOJ. Several of those stories are on the docket that didn't make this particular outline that I'll have in future episodes. But one of the big ones is that he's decided we're going to start locking people up for marijuana again because, hey, reefer madness and such. Uh, So he's eliminating Obama-era DOJ guidance on marijuana that asked states and U.S. attorneys to reduce the priority that they use to focus on marijuana crimes because there are more important issues facing the country right now. Uh, and one of his advisors, a Dr. Robert DuPont, actually wants all Americans drug tested automatically every time you go to the fucking doctor. These people are insane. But the, the reason, let me back up. My guess, and I could be wrong, but this is a suspicion. My guess for why the DOJ wants to get into marijuana prosecution again is because it's now big business. You have Colorado, several other states that have legalized marijuana for recreational use. You have these businesses that have propped up, offering weed to the public, legal within their borders, and they're making lots of money. Well, guess what? A lot of these companies can't use banks because the banks don't want to be on the hook providing services to an illegal enterprise. So they deal a lot with cash. Well, that cash is easily seized by the police as part of civil asset forfeiture. And since dealing weed is illegal federally, they would get to keep that money. So my suspicion is DOJ is trying to get some cash here. And if they allowed, you know, get a chance to throw some black people in prison, more the merrier. So we will give you links to all of that stuff for your reading enjoyment. Uh, In state-by-state news, the first of our beatdowns that prompted the episode title, uh, out of Troy, Alabama. 17-year-old Ulysses Wilkerson was pretty savagely beaten by police down there, ended up in the hospital. Uh, his nose and lips are crusted over in blood. His left eye is swollen shut. These were part of pictures that were posted on Facebook. Uh, his, the boy's father, Ulysses Wilkerson Jr., said his son's eye socket was cracked in three places. He had swelling on his brain as well as massive facial swelling. I believe it. No one really knows what happened. Apparently, he was already handcuffed at the time, but the police chief, Randall Barr, said the teen struggled with officers and reached toward his waistband. You could have seen that one coming from a mile away uh, as if he was trying to grab a weapon. Of course, it's hard to reach for your waistband when your hands are cuffed uh, and no weapon was recovered because he was unarmed, but they beat him anyway. So we'll give you a link to that. Out of Coleman, Alabama, uh, this isn't really a police story so much as a, a I'm a gun owner. I'm a gun enthusiast. I like guns. I like target practice. I keep one at home as protection. Um, But I'm also very cognizant about not doing dumb shit with it, not violating the law with it. Uh, Out of Cullman, Alabama, a dad noticed someone getting into his truck and decided he was just going to go fucking kill him because apparently a vehicle is more important than a life. That is modern Republican values for you. Uh, Well, he ended up taking a shotgun, fired a couple shots at the truck, shot and killed the driver, who turned out to be his 22-year-old son. Logan Trammell is now dead, killed by his own father for borrowing the family truck so he could go out with friends. Uh, Out of California, Chico Police Sergeant Scott Rappel has been charged with assault for strangling a detainee for sport after the guy was already handcuffed. Uh, 21-year-old William Rowley had been handcuffed with his hands behind his back, placed into a squad car, seat belted into place. But apparently he yelled at the officer, and that hurt Officer Repel's feelings. So Officer took his hand pressed the guy's head up against the uh, the metal cage of the car and choked him out for about eight seconds just because he could. And of course, it's all on body cam. First rule of fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. You're going to hear that one a couple times today as well. Uh, in Riverside County, former sheriff's deputy Oscar Rodriguez has been indicted in the murder of Louis Morin. Uh, at first, this is, this is the kind of fucked up shit that, wow. So here's from the story in the Los Angeles Times. They say, quote, at first... The fatal police shooting of Louis Morin Jr. appeared to be a tragic but not unusual occurrence. Riverside County Sheriff's Deputy Oscar Rodriguez told investigators that Morin resisted arrest while being served a warrant for outstanding felony charges. During a struggle, Rodriguez fired a shot into Morin's torso as Morin's mother watched aghast. Uh, Morin, 39, died outside of his Coachella home. Here's the fucked up part number one. Officials ruled the shooting was justified and cleared Rodriguez of any wrongdoing. Gotta wonder how thorough that investigation was because, fucked up part number two, uh, a lawsuit filed by Morin's family unearthed a twisted love triangle involving Rodriguez, Morin, and the mother of two of Morin's kids that called the shooting into question. So basically, yeah, there's a love triangle involved. Civil suit was filed as part of discovery They found out that this woman had a relationship with both the cop and the dead guy. Uh, So on Friday, prosecutors announced that Rodriguez, 36, who had previously been cleared, uh, has now been arrested and charged with murder and the use of a firearm causing death. The ex-girlfriend has been taken into custody and charged as an accessory. Uh, Out of Roseville, California, a Sacramento Sheriff Sergeant, Kevin Steed, uh, was part of the Vice Squad. So this guy was actually paid to arrest prostitutes and gangbangers and everything else. There's actually an August uh, prostitution raid where he got the TV cameras to go follow him around so he could be a big badass and, you know, go ahead and get people for these victimless crimes. Uh, Well, now months later, it turns out Steed has been caught in another agency's prostitution sting, uh, Roseville had one, arrested dozens of people. He was one of the ones who got arrested. That's out of California. Uh, in Colorado, and Longmont, we've talked a lot about this case uh, involving the suites. It's a public housing complex where tenants had their Fourth Amendment rights just violated willy-nilly because the police wanted to do some training. Uh, well, the final police report has been released in that case, uh, and as a result, the director, of the Longmont Housing Authority, Crystal Arazo has been fired, uh, and two of the police officers who were involved, uh, K-9 officers Michael Marquart and Billy Sawyer, have been suspended, one for 30 hours, the other for 10. Now, interesting part, the supervisor who allowed this to happen, Sergeant Andy Feaster, uh, was not punished at all. They only punished the patrol officers. But the funny part is, so as part of the uh, incident, there's this insistence that the residents consented to the searches. Apparently these officers would go with Arazo door to door, knock on the doors and ask the residents for permission to come in. This is different from a private uh, landlord tenant situation. So typically if you look in your lease, if you're leasing an apartment, there's usually a clause in there that allows the landlord to come in whenever they want. Because Longmont Housing Authority is a public housing complex, you've got constitutional issues at play that you don't have with a typical private landlord so they would basically try and coerce these people to come in and they would insist that, you know, everyone gave consent, even though these tenants would later tell the media that they did not. But in particular, as part of this report, you find out, quote, in addition, two units allegedly were searched without the residents being in them at the time at all. One of the residents in that incident said she came home to find the officer and the dog in her living room. Quote, there wasn't really like a big conversation about, um, you know, what to do if someone's not home one of the officers told the investigator. There was just sort of an assumption all the way around that they were going to go in. That's wildly disturbing. So if you want to listen to some of our old episodes on this, we talked about it first back in episode nine, back in June when it first happened. Uh, Then in episode 17, we talked about the fact police were refusing to release any details to the press. And then back in episode 38, we talked about the Longmont Housing Authority paying $210,000 of taxpayer money to settle the claims. And that's just one piece of the lawsuit. There's still a lawsuit pending. So that is out of Longmont, Colorado, in Connecticut, out of Hartford. We've talked before, back in episode 36, uh, about Brianna Brochu. She's the University of Hartford student that uh, is a really gross chick that would take her roommate's toothbrush and shove it up her ass to try and poison her roommate, uh, Used, uh, rubbed used tampons on her roommate's book bag, put moldy clam dip in her roommate's lotions for the intense purpose of trying to poison this girl until she would pick another roommate. Uh, well, she's avoided a hate crime charge. Uh, and instead has only been charged with misdemeanor, criminal mischief, and breach of the peace. She has pleaded not guilty and has asked for a jury trial. In Florida, in Mineola, uh, John Ratcliffe had some neighbors where they had a slight dispute during New Year's. Uh, Turns out the neighbors were shooting off fireworks. One of them crossed into his yard. He claims hit his car. Uh, Ratcliffe then fired back verbally and then actually took a gun and shot at them twice Then took a chainsaw, fired that bad boy up and started sawing down the fence between them, all the while shouting epithets at his neighbors, talking about it's going to be their last uh, year in that particular residence. The police showed up. The guy still had his gun on him in one hand, still had a beer in the other. Uh, The officers told him to show his hands. He told them to, quote, suck my dick and did not comply with orders to show his hands. There ended up being a 20-minute standoff. He was eventually taken alive. Now, it turns out this guy's a public works employee. He works for the city, uh, but he's taken alive. Now, I, I say that not because I think he should be killed. I don't. It goes back to my point that police are capable of taking people alive if they choose to. They just deliberately choose not to. This guy had a gun, a beer, and a chainsaw, refused to comply with orders to show his hands, told the police to suck his dick, and they still managed to have a 20-minute standoff to take him into custody anyway because they actually value human life. You'll be shocked to find out that John Ratcliffe is white. Uh, out of Georgia, in Columbus, police shot and killed 35-year-old Jarvis Likes. Uh, it turns out that he turned around as he was approaching a DUI checkpoint uh, from the story, quote, a chase followed and Likes drove onto a dead end street in a neighborhood. He stopped and got out of his Kia Forte and there was an altercation between Likes and the trooper when Likes tried to get back into his car. So the guy got out of the car and then got back into the car. And then there was a fight with the officers. He's getting back into the car. Uh, the trooper then pulled a gun out, shot him in the chest. Uh, and what they found is that Trooper was not injured, but likes supposedly had a hung gun inside a container in the driver's area. I'm not sure what the hell going on there. But ponder for a minute, separate from the gun, separate from the altercation, why this guy died. He is driving home on a street that he happened to pick that the police had blocked off. And he turned around. To go pick an alternate route. He wasn't actually drunk. There's no allegations anywhere in the story that he was intoxicated. He just don't want to deal with the hassle of a DUI checkpoint. And as a result, the police ultimately killed him for it. So that's out of Columbus, out of Forsyth, Georgia. The Southeast Regional Division of the State Department of Corrections tweeted out a Happy Holidays picture. And they decided that we're a prison. The best place to take a photo is in a cotton field. Uh, From the story, quote, The department posted the photo on its Facebook page on January 1st and removed it the next day after receiving a lot of comments about it, according to Gwendolyn Hogan, a spokesman for the corrections department. There was no ill intent behind it. They just selected a cotton field because they thought it looked like snow. Y'all, I live in North Carolina, okay? I drive through cotton fields every single time I go visit my grandparents in Virginia Beach. You just go take North Carolina 186, go up through Northampton County, you're going to see some cotton. There's going to be cotton all over the side of the roadway because when you harvest it, you can't get it all. A cotton field doesn't look like it snowed. Ain't nothing looking like snow in a damn cotton field. Now, it's interesting because Georgia, as they're meaning no ill intent decided to take this picture as part of a prison photo because Georgia has the second highest uh, per capita incarceration rate for jails in the entire country. So the Prison Policy Initiative does these annual reports where they compare jail incarceration, prison incarceration, and then total involvement with the justice system. So both incarceration and probation combined. What they find is that Georgia is second highest in terms of number of people incarcerated per 100,000 residents for jails. They are fourth highest in incarceration for prisons, and they are the first highest overall by a mile For total involvement with the incarceration system, they have 5,828 people per 100,000 that are either actively incarcerated or on probation. Number two is Idaho with only 2,954 people per 100,000. So Georgia locks up a shitload of folks. So that is out of Forsyth in their supposedly, you know, unintentionally problematic cotton field picture. Out of Washington County, Georgia, uh, three white sheriff's deputies have been indicted for murder. In the death of 58-year-old black man, Uri Lee Martin, uh, they said that he had, quote, acted suspiciously because he asked a stranger for water. Uh, Michael Howell, Henry Copeland, and Rhett Scott are the killer cops who were all indicted in this case. They were fired in October in connection with the shooting. Uh, District Attorney Hayward Altman has said there's no evidence at all that Mr. Martin had broken any laws, at the time he encountered the police. No surprise there. Uh, Out of Illinois, Carol Stream apparently has never heard of Bay's theorem. Uh, Police will be starting new roadside drug tests in February. Quote, Carol Stream police will begin testing drivers in February for marijuana, cocaine, amphetamines, methamphetamines, and opiates like heroin. The test is designed to be quick, portable, and accurate. L-O-fucking-L. So, I don't know how many of you had to take statistics. I had to as part of my undergraduate education because my degree was in computer science. There's this thing called Bayes' theorem, and it talks about, it's basically statistical modeling in a sense, and it looks at not just positives and negatives, but also false positives and false negatives. So if you take, for example, and this is a a very common example that you'll see often when you're talking about roadside drug tests, Uh, If you take a test that's 99% sensitive and 99% specific, which is the standard for super reliability, but you're using that on a population where only about 0.5% are drug users, the question you have to ask is, what is the probability that any randomly selected person with a positive test is actually a user? Now, you go through Bayes' theorem to calculate this. The assumption of politicians is that the answer is 99% because it's 99% accurate, right? Well, it turns out that's wrong, because the actual accuracy rate is only around 33.2%. So let's put that into numbers instead of percentages. So if you have 1,000 people who get tested with these roadside tests, now remember, roadside tests, 99% accurate is how they're advertised. You're going to expect, out of any 1,000, 995 don't use, because, again, we're saying a 0.5% rate of people who actually use drugs, and then you have five people who do use. So out of those 995 non-users, you're going to have roughly 10 false positives. That's your expectation, just because the test is only 99% accurate. You've got that 1% off. So 1% of 995 gives you 9.5 or round up to 10. Out of the five actual users, you're going to have that 99% effectiveness. You're going to have five true positives. So out of 15 positive results, only five of them are actually accurate, which means only 33% of the time are you getting a true positive result from a roadside drug test. Uh, it's it's fantastically stupid. I can't believe police departments still use it. I know why they use it. They use it to find a way to get you in the system and make some money off of you. But roadside drug tests are fantastically unreliable. And legislators, politicians should know better than to allow them in their respective jurisdictions. Uh, Out of Chicago, there's a lot of stuff in Chicago. Uh, From the Irony is Dead Department, Fraternal Order of Police Vice President Martin Prieb spoke during the public comment portion of the city council's finance committee meeting where aldermen approved a $31 million settlement for four men who each spent some 15 years in prison for a 1994 rape and murder before DNA linked to the crime, uh, basically exonerated all of them because there was a separate convicted killer who the DNA belonged to. Uh, what preb said is quote what is happening in this city is that the civil rights lawyers have carved out a cottage industry in the name of wrongful convictions they look to this chamber as their blank check their playbook is simple. They claim police misconduct. They get the prosecutors to exonerate. They draft a willing media and then manipulate the citizens of Chicago out of their tax money. Uh, Preeves said that it's ludicrous to think a group of detectives would frame the men when the real killer was still walking around to potentially reveal their frame up. You know, that's funny to me because as that is going on, also in Chicago, Uh, 15 men had charges against them thrown out as part of a mass exoneration that we first talked about back in Fiscal Mall episode 38, because they were all framed by a corrupt cop. So those 15 men are applying for certificates of uh, exoneration because even though their cases were thrown out, the charges are still there. We talk about collateral tongue tie. tongue I Jeez, forgive me, y'all. I don't know why I'm having a hard time forming words today. Uh, we talk about collateral consequences, what happens when you're arrested. You end up with a record. You end up on Google. You end up with a mugshot. All of that stuff still continues to exist, even if you're later found not guilty. So these 15 guys, who were all innocent, all framed by police... Uh, still have to go through this process of getting the court to give them a certificate of exoneration so they can try and get their lives back. Uh, so that is out of Illinois in Indiana, out of Jefferson County. 33-year-old jail commander Andrew Horeen has been arrested for stealing $7,500 in bond money that inmates had been uh, given so they could post bond and be released. From the story, it says, quote, Andrew Horing was arrested on multiple charges, including corrupt business influence, obstruction of justice, official misconduct, and theft. He was an employee for the Jefferson County Jail from September 2007 until he was fired this month. The investigation started on November 2017, when Jefferson County Sheriff John Wallace contacted the Indiana State Police to report that money was missing from the commissary account, which holds bond money received by inmates. That's out of Indiana in Kansas. Wichita keeps fucking things up. Uh, we've talked at length on Twitter, and I mentioned it during Thursday's bonus episode. Wichita police executed 26-year-old Andrew Finch as part of what is a swatting. Uh, basically, two guys were playing Call of Duty. They got into an argument. Uh, one of them threatened to call 911 on the other Enlisted the help of this other guy uh, who was the, actually, the only person who's actually been charged in the case. That guy called Wichita police, claimed that he had uh, shot his dad, got into a fight with his mom, had a gun, whatever else. So police show up and this Andrew Finch guy doesn't know what the fuck's going on, doesn't play Call of Duty, just minding his own business, shows up to the front door because he sees all kinds of police across the street and he's unarmed and you can see on the body cam that he's unarmed, do not know what the hell's going on. He opens the door, they tell him to raise his hands, he reaches for his shorts to pull his pants up because he's talking to people and has no idea why police would be yelling at him to raise his hands, and they shoot him dead. And the fucked up part is, aside from the killing, which is fucked up on its own, swatting was first identified by the FBI as a problem back in 2008. They sent out a fucking all-points bulletin or whatever the hell they call it to police departments across the country that this was going on. Wichita is the largest city in Kansas. There's no fucking excuse not to know about this. They're the 48th largest city in the entire country. And on top of that, they knew that there were red flags from the story. The police chief, Troy Livingston says, quote, this call was a little peculiar for us. It went to a substation first, then it was relayed to dispatch, then dispatch gave it to us. Well, no shit, because it was a fake call. How the fuck you didn't know that? I don't know. But at the very least, they didn't even give the guy a chance to figure out what the hell was going on, because what Livingston said was, quote, a male came to the front door. As he came to the front door, one of our officers discharged his weapon. So that's out of Wichita. But if that's not bad enough, uh, Radley Balco, also in The Watch, has a story on the conditioning that we've got of police, how they fear every fucking buddy for no damn reason. He talks about the death of Finch, Daniel Shaver, Ishmael Lopez, and several others. I'm going to give you that link. But if not, that, that there is not bad enough, uh, Wichita police also nearly killed a nine-year-old girl. Uh, Officer Paul Cruz was responding to a welfare check call. A guy had been mentally ill. He got to the house. There was a dog there, and he decided to try and kill the dog because puppy side is important to police. In the process, he missed the dog because police also are terrible shots and managed to shoot a 9-year-old girl in the forehead just above her right eye. So the entire police department in Wichita just needs to fucking disband, get some real training, and then start over again. That's out of Kansas. In Maine, in Gorham, Maine, uh, 51 man, you can't make some of this shit up. So Maine, y'all might remember, is the state where Governor Paul DePage ranted and raved about drug dealers. Uh, He said, you know, quote, there are guys with the name D-Money, Smoothie, Shifty, these types of guys, they come from Connecticut and New York, they come up here, they sell their heroin, they go back home. Uh, Well, it turns out the people selling drugs in Maine are actually Maine police. Uh, 51-year-old Jeffrey Linscott was arrested for dealing fentanyl and cocaine in the parking lot of a Hannaford supermarket. Uh, He is a state trooper who recently retired and is drawing a fat pension from taxpayers. Uh, In Maryland, Maryland, Jesus, one, two, three pages worth of Maryland. Uh, In Baltimore, fourth rule of Fisk, The Wire was a documentary. Uh, There was a raid on a corner store that became this huge to-do for the cameras. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Ahmed Alreohani and Sheriff Sharif Shabi uh, each spent about a month in jail following the raid of the Charles Village discount mart where they both worked before being released after a court hearing on Wednesday. The raid on the store drew lots of attention in early December, in part because of the volume of suspected fentanyl, a powerful opioid that has become Baltimore's number one killer, claiming more lives than heroin and street violence. The alleged amount, 16 pounds, drove police to tape off the store for hours, while crews in hazmat suits, that's hazardous materials, uh, hazmat suits entered to package up the substance. Officers later walked out bag after bag after bag of alleged drugs, and police outlined in charging documents a litany of packaging materials and other items they had uncovered and alleged were tied to the illegal drug trade. They suspected morphine made up the remaining 13 pounds. Well, all charges have been dropped against the two men because after they tested it, they found out that these 29 pounds of whatever this was, uh, was actually not illegal drugs at all. So all of those charges have been dismissed. Uh, also in Baltimore, a U.S. District Court judge vacated the convictions of two men who were framed by the Gun Trace Task Force that we've talked about at length. I mean, we talked about them in episode 25, 27, 32, 38, 39, 41. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on the Gun Trace Task Force. Uh, well, it's it's vacating the conviction is good. I don't want to cover that, but as a sign of how egregious it was the judge actually stepped down from the bench and walked over to the defense table to personally apologize to the guys. Uh, from the story, it says, "Quote: A U.S. District Court judge stepped down from his bench on Monday and apologized to two men who spent years in prison after allegedly having drugs planted on them by an officer charged in the Gun Trace Task Force racketeering case. Umar Burley was freed from prison in August, seven years into a 15-year sentence as prosecutors pursued allegations that Baltimore Police Sergeant Wayne Jenkins planted drugs in Burley's car following a deadly high-speed chase in 2010. We're going to talk about Jenkins in a minute. Uh, Both Burley and the other guy, whose name I don't have in my notes for some reason, they both pled guilty. So if you ever wonder, do innocent people plead guilty? The answer is yes, because the potential punishment to being found guilty Uh, if you don't plead, is often far greater than if you just take the plea and hope you at least get some of your life back. It's very common for innocent people to plead guilty. It sucks, but it happens. I wrote a Twitter thread on it like a year ago. Uh, So Judge Bennett, who was the guy who accepted their pleas, uh, said the court takes a deliberate, careful approach when accepting guilty pleas, which they do, uh, but the system still failed. No fucking shit, because we rely on police officers to do their jobs, not to be corrupt little fucks. Uh, So Bennett got down and said, I'm very sorry. So while we're talking about Jenkins, Jenkins is pleading guilty. He has pled guilty to racketeering. So this is the guy who is the leader of the Baltimore Department's uh, corrupt gun trace task force that we've talked so much about. Well, as part of his plea, we already had a bunch of crimes we knew they had committed. He admitted to just a fuckload more like this was a full blown criminal enterprise. So we talk at length on uh, Twitter about Rico and it's never RICO. There's actually a website, is it RICO? And the answer is always no. Popat talks about it at length. Uh, well, this is one of those times where it actually was RICO. This guy was running a full-blown criminal enterprise paid for by Baltimore taxpayers. Uh, from the story in the Baltimore Sun, it says, quote, The plea agreement of former Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, 37, of Middle River, broadened the scope of what federal prosecutors have called a criminal enterprise operating behind the authority of the badge admitting to a wide range of new crimes, including dirt bike thefts and reselling stolen prescription drugs looted during the 2015 riots. Jenkins admitted to stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and drugs while using an associate to resell marijuana and cocaine and splitting the profits. Documents outlined Jenkins using illegal GPS devices to track people he suspected of having money and entering premises without a warrant to see what was inside, a practice the officers called a sneak and peek. Jenkins also admitted to being involved with planning drugs on a man in 2010 setting up Detective Sean Suter, who prosecutors say was oblivious to the fact that they had been planted, to find them. Suter was killed one day before he was set to testify before a federal grand jury about the incident, which raised the intrigue around the only on-duty fatal shooting of a Baltimore police officer in the department's history to go unsolved. We all it, It's been solved. We all know what happened, even though they're not going to actually say it. Uh, So that is in the case of Mr. Jenkins. There's also a thread on Twitter where a woman noted that Baltimore schools gets about half as much money as the police department. And she posted a picture of the weight room in one of the schools that has been damaged from burst pipes because Baltimore – so again, going back to the fourth rule of Fisk, The Wire being a documentary – Baltimore has just not bothered to cut on the heat for several of their schools. So there are pictures and videos of kids going to class in freezing weather where they're bundled up in their coats and mittens and everything else and they can't fucking learn. And it's like a prison. It's like a fucking prison. School should not be a prison. So this woman posted the picture of the damaged weight room and then also posted a picture of the fancy gym that the police have in a tweet. And the tweet says, When pictures are worth a thousand words, the weight room of the Baltimore Southeast District Police from the recruitment Twitter feed and the wrestling room at Douglas High School in West Baltimore post-burst pipe. Why are these conditions acceptable for kids? Now, that's a good-ass question, but you have some real idiots on the Baltimore PD, including a local guy who decided to respond, quote, so you want to damage the weight room? What sense does that make? The weight room is paid for privately, right? Referring to the police weight room. How the fuck you get that she wants to damage a weight room and pointing out that the public weight room is problematic? I don't know. Um, He continues when she responds to the Baltimore police commissioner that he's being a dick. Now, bear in mind, this particular Twitter account, he's got a long history of being a dick to multiple people. He once called a a, a reporter a prostitute and everything else, and he's still on on the clock because that's how Baltimore is. Uh, I can say whatever I want off duty. I believe you want the room damaged by your tweet. That's my First Amendment, right? Is it not, you fucking snowflake? You libtards can't hold your elected people accountable, so you want to blame others for your lot in life. Weren't you moving out of the city at last bitch session about schools? Aha, you lied, didn't you? So then another guy points in the thread and is like, hey, you're you're being a dick, and this is not how a police officer is supposed to act. Uh, So he responds, well, maybe Melissa's employer ought to know about her tweets. Isn't she in the health field? She mentioned something about having an MA a while ago. You, Paul, you're in construction, right? Let's see if phone calls can shed light on you as well. These people are unwell. They are mentally un-fucking-well. So that's out of Maryland. In Massachusetts, Rolling Stone has a lengthy write-up on the uh, crime lab fiasco and how more than 32,000 criminal cases have been tainted. Uh, I'm not going to go into it because we've talked about it before Go back to episode 31, 33, 41, and 42 if you want some of those details. Uh, the gist of it is it covers DUI prosecutions, the drug case prosecutions, a whole bunch of other stuff. And we will give you a link to the Rolling Stone story as well. Out of Michigan in Wayne County, uh, basically they had a whole bunch of rape kits. They just didn't bother to fucking test Uh from the story, it says, quote, eight years after a routine tour of a Detroit police storage warehouse uncovered 11,341 untested rape kits, a Michigan prosecutor has managed to test 10,000 of them, identifying 817 serial rapists in the process. Holy shit. Now, there's a saying in the prosecution world. I don't know if it's legit or not. I have no clue where those statistics from come, come from. God, see, I don't know why I'm fucking. I'm not drunk. I promise you I'm not drunk. Um, but they say that a rapist will rape between like seven to ten times before they get caught. So if you assume these 817 serial rapists from untested rape kids, I mean, we're talking thousands upon thousands of rapes that have gone undetected because the government was just fucking lazy and didn't bother to do what it's supposed to do. So that is out of Michigan. Also in Wayne County, killer cop Mike Bessner has been charged with second-degree murder and the killing of 15-year-old Damon Grimes. Uh, this is the case we talked about back in episode 25, where this is a 15-year-old kid driving an ATV. The officer tells him to stop. The kid freaks and tries to ride home. So rather than just let him go and arrest him later, the officer decides, you know what, I'm just going to fucking tase the kid in the back because I can Well, the kid is driving a vehicle that's still in motion. Momentum keeps it going. So when he's tased, he can't control it, crashes into a car, he ends up dying. So that officer has been charged with second-degree murder. We will see if he ends up being convicted. Uh, In Grand Rapids, Michigan, the police who pulled a gun on an 11-year-old black girl and then handcuffed her because they were searching for a middle-aged white woman, It doesn't make any fucking sense, but they're not going to be disciplined at all because that's totally okay. Uh, The incident from the story says, quote, the incident occurred on December 6th and was recorded on body cam. The footage shows the girl, Amnesty Hodges, screaming in panic for over two minutes as she is cuffed and placed in a police cruiser. An internal investigation into the incident found the officers did not violate department policy. The officers were searching for Hodges' aunt, a 40-year-old white woman, at the time of the incident, Hodges is an 11-year-old black girl. While the police chief says the video made him nauseous, he clarified that the officers were following procedure. That's a time where it's time to change the fucking procedure. If this is normal, that's a problem. At uh, of Minnesota Minneapolis, prosecutor Mike Freeman has been deciding whether or not he's going to charge killer cop Muhammad Noor. He's the guy that shot the Australian woman, Justine Damon. She called police to report an assault in the alley behind her home. The police rolled up, and they ended up shooting her dead. Of course, their body cams weren't on, nor shot over his partner. So he's in the passenger seat, shot over the driver's seat to kill Damon. The whole story is just, it smells bad. Well, basically, the prosecutor has been trying to set the table, and lower expectations, and let people know that he's not going to charge Officer Noor. Uh, He was actually recorded at an event where he says, quote, I have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that at the moment he shot the gun he feared for his life and he used force because he thought he was going to be killed. Now, let me pause. That's not what the prosecutor has to prove. I don't know how the fuck the prosecutor said that, if he actually believes that. I don't know. That's the job of the defense in proving their affirmative defense to prove. Um, But I can't. He won't answer my questions because he doesn't have to, okay? We all have Fifth Amendment rights, and I respect that. So I can't talk to her because she's dead, and the other cop just gave us some bullshit, okay? So guess what? I got to figure out angles of the shot, gun residues, reckless use of force, experts. Uh, I hear a lot of whining. I hear a lot of whining and a lot of explaining that if this were just a normal, regular civilian Uh, The state would spare no expense to make sure that he was locked up for life, but because the guy happens to have a badge, we're trying to go out of our way to make sure he doesn't get charged. Uh, Out of Mississippi, in Vardaman, ProPublica has an in-depth review of the case of Tyler Hare, uh, who's a kid who spent three and a half years trying to get a psychiatric evaluation in order for him to stand trial in an assault case. Uh, from the story it says, quote, Tyler didn't fall through any cracks. Mississippi didn't lose track of them. A review of available records suggests that Mississippi may well have the worst record of any state for prolonged stays in jail for inmates awaiting the most basic psychiatric evaluation. A copy of the state's wait list shows that as of August 2017, 102 defendants accused but not yet convicted of various crimes were waiting in county jails for forensic evaluations. One had waited 1,249 days. That's 3.4 years. Another waited 1,173 days. That's 3.2 years. Still another had waited 879 days. That's 2.4 years. Uh, So worse, after all this, it's a long story, a long read. This kid's clearly fucked up in the head. After all of those years, uh, his evaluation takes only a couple minutes. They find him competent. He goes to trial, is convicted a couple days later, and is in prison for over a decade. So that whole story is a fucking mess. Uh, out of Clarksdale, Mississippi, there was a courtroom fight between Judge Derek Hobson and Assistant Police Chief Troy Kimball uh, that led to the judge being arrested. Uh, quote, at some point, Judge Hobson reportedly bumped Kimball as he was walking, and sources say that's when Kimball flipped Judge Hobson, handcuffed him, and led him out of his own courtroom while he was still wearing his robe. This is a report from the media, by the way. Uh, They continue, quote, WREG went to the Clarksdale Police Department, but nobody would confirm details or provide records regarding the incident. We saw Assistant Chief Kimball, and he asked us to leave after I pulled out a cell phone to get video and pictures. He also said he had no comment. WREG also briefly ran into Judge Hobson inside the mayor's office, and he simply said it's standard protocol not to comment on judicial proceedings. He didn't confirm or deny being arrested after the incident. So that is out of Clarksdale, Mississippi, in Montana, in Billings, a police officer with the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs, 43 year old Dana Michael Bullcoming, pled guilty to coercing a woman into having sex with him. We call that rape, by the way. The officer also got the victim pregnant. Uh, But the the way that it all happened is, is really creepy. So basically, she called law enforcement because her mother was driving while drunk. So this officer, Bullcoming, responded, found the victim's mother. She was safe, left the scene, and then went to go talk to the victim at the victim's residence. He knocked on the door. No one answered because the victim had actually fallen asleep on a living room sofa. She woke up to see the officer actually in her home standing over her, Uh, He said, uh, asked if the victim was alone, and she said that her children were asleep in the other room. Officer Bullcoming then told the victim that he could smell alcohol and that he would need to call social services and arrest her for child endangerment because she was intoxicated while in the presence of her children. She wasn't intoxicated, by the way. Uh, The victim told Bullcoming that she'd started a new job and that she would lose it if she was arrested. Bullcoming then said that, quote, something had to be done. And when the woman asked what he meant by that, he said that she had to have sex with him. Uh, So a plea agreement calls for two other counts of lying to federal officers to be dismissed at sentencing. He's not going to be prosecuted for sexual abuse. In exchange for all of that, he will plead guilty to deprivation of rights under color of law. So that's out of Montana. In Nebraska, in Lincoln, uh, neo-Nazi Taylor Michael Wilson, uh, what Dave Chappelle calls the Tiki Torch Whites, uh, he's been charged in U.S. District Court for attempting to derail an Amtrak train just before 2 o'clock in the morning. On October 22nd, an assistant conductor felt the train breaking, searched for the cause, and found Wilson in the engineer's seat of the follow engine playing with the controls. When the conductor told him to get away from it, the guy said, quote, I'm the conductor, bitch. Wilson had a loaded 38 caliber handgun in his waistband, a speed loader in his pocket, a National Socialist Movement business card, those are the Nazis, by the way, uh, on him. He also had a backpack with three more speed loaders, a box of ammunition, a knife, tin snips, scissors, and a ventilation mask. This guy was taken alive because, again, police can take people alive when they choose to do so. But of course, as I've already mentioned, Taylor Wilson is white, so we care about him. We don't care about the black folks. Uh, outside of Lincoln, Senator Paul Schumacher has introduced a bill to give, in, uh, forgive me for interspersing some of these state-level Congress critters and their craziness. Uh, he's proposed a bill to allow the state to, quote, delegate complete or partial sovereignty over a designated, limited, and sparsely settled area of the state not to exceed 99 years as part of a way of spurring economic growth. Guys, this is not new. All right, so we have this thing called Company Towns. They've existed in America for a long time until recently. And the reason why they've faded away is because that it's not very uh, profitable to have a company do everything in an area. You know, you used to see it a lot with coal mining stuff where the mine was owned by a company and the company would also own the restaurants and the stores and everything else. There's a particular case that we study in law school where the company would issue its own special currency that its workers could use. But the fact is, when you run a business, it just doesn't make sense for the business to try and do everything. The business should focus on where it has a comparative advantage. So passing it, okay, great. I don't know why you would have to do that. The reason why company towns don't exist is because it's just not profitable for them to exist. But, you know, those are politicians for you. Uh, In Nevada, out of Las Vegas, Kirsten Lobato has been ordered released after she spent 15 years in prison for a murder she did not commit. Uh, 44-year-old Duran Bailey was killed around 9 p.m. on July 8th of 2001. Uh, It turns out there's actually uncontested evidence that showed that Lobato was in her hometown of Panaca, which is about two and a half hours away at the time. She was with her parents. She was 18 years old. Uh, The prosecutor, even though, so this all comes out that this woman is two and a half hours away. There's no conceivable way she could have killed this guy. Uh, But even then, the, officer, the prosecutor's like, well, fuck it. You know, it's not that she's actually not guilty. What she says is, quote, by the time the third trial could proceed, Lobato would be immediately eligible for parole if she were convicted. Although we fully believe in her guilt, as did the 24 members of our community who found her guilty beyond a reasonable doubt at the second trial, our resources are such that we are electing not to proceed with the third trial of this defendant, particularly considering the more than 15 years she has served in prison. Uh, also in Las Vegas, there was a mistrial declared in a and Bundy case involving the standoff with the Bureau of Land Management uh, because essentially the U S attorney's office committed prosecutorial misconduct. They withheld evidence. They are obligated by law to turn over to the defense. And as repugnant as I find the Bundy's because they're welfare whores in essence, um, it, this is the resu- right result. I can't find any fault with the judge's decision here. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, a federal judge Wednesday declared a mistrial in the prosecution of Nevada cattleman Clive and Bundy, his two sons, and a co defendant, citing the government's willful failure to turn over multiple documents that could help the defense. The judge listed six types of evidence that she said prosecutors deliberately withheld before trial, including information about the presence of an FBI surveillance camera on a hill overlooking the Bundy Ranch, documents about U.S. Bureau of Land Management snipers outside the ranch, maps, an FBI log with entries about snipers on standby, threat assessments that indicated the Bunnies weren't violent, and that the Bureau of Land Management was trying to provoke a conflict by antagonizing them, and nearly 500 pages of internal affairs documents involving lead Bureau Special Agent Dan. Love who has since been fired from the agency. All that stuff is what we call Brady material. I don't know if I've talked about Brady versus Maryland before. Um, if I haven't, essentially that's the stuff that the government is obligated to turn over because it has what is po- called potentially exculpatory evidence. That's evidence that has a tendency, however slight, to exonerate the defendant. And it's in contrast to what is called inculpatory evidence, which is evidence that has a tendency, however slight, to incriminate the defendant, to prove him guilty. Uh, So the government has to turn that stuff over. They're required by law to turn that over. So when the government doesn't do that willfully, repeatedly, with a bunch of different types of things, uh, of course you're going to get a mistrial. I mean, that's how it's supposed to work. Uh, So we'll see what happens there. But essentially, taxpayers have wasted a shitload of money because Jefferson Sessions Department of Justice can't get its shit together. Out of New Hampshire in Canaan, 26-year-old Jesse Chapney has been summarily executed by a New Hampshire state trooper. Champney was driving with his girlfriend when they noticed that they were being followed by an officer. Uh, the officer tried to pull them over and instead the they fled, went through a snow-covered field and everything else. Champney got out of the car, ran, told his girlfriend to run in the other direction and she didn't. But essentially the, he ended up dead and we don't know why. So from the story it says, quote, he was never trying to advance on anyone, he was trying to get away said the 23-year-old Tobin, that's the girlfriend, uh, who has also had run-ins with the police. uh, Quote, There was no high-speed chase, there were no drugs involved, there were no weapons involved, there was no stolen car, and there was no serious crime committed. He was scared and just wanted to be with his family for the holidays. That's it. Uh, The New Hampshire Attorney General's office has confirmed that Champney was shot four times, and on Wednesday identified New Hampshire State Trooper Christopher O'Toole as the officer who fired the fatal round. Authorities also said Kanan police officer Samuel Provenza was at the scene during the incident. He did not discharge his firearm, according to a news release. The reason why that matters is because Tobin claims that Provenza had some issues with Champney. So we'll see how that investigation pans out. Uh, Out of Concord, New Hampshire, again on the topic of state-level Congress critters and their stupid ideas, uh, Richard Marple has introduced a bill to recognize sovereign citizens. Uh, now we've talked a bit about sovereign citizens before. They are they're nuts. I mean, sovereign citizenship issues—it's it's, it's batshit lunacy of a high degree. I mean, there's no way to other otherwise properly characterize it. It's just if you get bored, go check Wikipedia to learn some of the the nuttery that they believe. It's just nuts. Uh, well, this guy has introduced a bill—one of the pieces of sovereign citizen stupidity is that everything involved in life somehow is a transaction involving the sale of goods because they always talk about the Uniform Commercial Code that only applies to sales of goods over $500. Um, as part of this bill, here's the text. Uh, he says, quote, The General Court finds... And why the legislature is called the General Court, I don't know. That's, that's a New Hampshire thing. Uh, the General Court finds that the protocol of the Uniform Commercial Code as adopted in RSA 382-A requires all corporations to disclose all elements of any contract being offered rampant non-disclosure is a fault that must be addressed by the general court. I got news for you. There's there is no rampant non-disclosure of contract terms because if you've got a written contract, it's in the document. Now if this is an oral contract, that's one thing, but a written document, it's in there. Uh, but what they say is All contracts with sovereign inhabitants defined under Part 2, Article 30 of the New Hampshire Constitution and sojourners in this republic should have all elements of any contract being offered fully and completely disclosed and explained, particularly those contracts involving an ens legis or straw man. So an ens legis is a creature of law, so it's a reference to corporations, and a straw man is... I don't even want to get into sovereign citizen nuttery because it just drives me fucking bonkers. But the theory is that you as a person are one thing your name in contracts and court documents where it's typically in all caps is a separate corporate entity created by the government because supposedly the united states declared bankruptcy and took your social security money and it, there's all there's so much batshit craziness like i can't even properly articulate it to you because it's fucking nuts um so this is all here that you have to now articulate these provisions we involving straw men or ends legis um, and you have to include above the signature line those particular sections, as well as the words, quote, all rights reserved, or, quote, without prejudice to, and then list a whole bunch of UCC sections. Um, and this is another thing about sovereign citizenship they like thinking there's magic language they can cite that somehow affects their legal rights, and, and there's just not. Uh, and it says the failure of any corporation to provide full disclosure of all elements of every contract as required by paragraph one shall result in the forfeiture of $10,000 to the state treasury. If a municipal corporation funded by the state fails to make such disclosure, the forfeiture of $10,000 will be a set off the entity's funding received from the state. So this legislator is a nut, sovereign citizens are a nut, but apparently in New Hampshire they're going to get some protection from the government that they don't believe actually exists, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, out of New Jersey in Bordentown. Now, we've talked before about police chief Frank Nucera back in episode 36. This is the guy that spent his career terrorizing black people. He said that black people were like ISIS. They had no value and needed to be mowed down. Uh, He would send dogs to football games to terrorize black attendees. And there's a particular case where he had a black boy handcuffed and then just decided to smash his face into a door jam for sport. Well, that guy was indicted for, uh, you know, terrorizing people. As part of that, turns out he's also lied to investigators. I know that shocks you um, because he's also been indicted with making false statements. So we will see how that all turns out. He's going to have a fun time there. Uh, out of Matawan, Matawan, I don't know, Matawan, New Jersey, I think that sounds right. Matawan Police Department posted a picture on Facebook of their officers for the holidays and you know how there's been stories about the, uh, the okay hand gesture and how it's been co-opted by a bunch of Nazis because the three fingers form a W and the, the circle part forms a P so it can stand for white power. Uh, now, whether that's legit or not, the fact you see Richard Spencer and Milo Yapadopoulos and all these e- people using it, it is basically now a Nazi hand gesture. Well, as part of this picture that they posted... The text reads, quote, some of our officers are specially trained cuddlers who can stop by if your heat goes out, as they're pictured in a blizzard. Uh, well, one of the officers is flashing the Nazi hand gesture. That's uh, also, it's not just happening in New Jersey. There's actually another picture from uh, the same week in Zephyr Hills, Florida, where an officer is doing the exact same thing on a picture on the front cover. Um, so that is in Matawan, Matawan. Uh, there's also an editorial by Stephen Greenhut in the Orange County, California Register, talking about bail reform. And I missed this earlier when it happened, but he has a quote that says, quote, after New Jersey passed reformed to its bail system, the state's jail population has fallen by 15.8%, crime has decreased by 3.8%, and violent crime has decreased by 12.4% just goes back to the point that locking people up in jail does not necessarily impact the crime rate, which means that releasing them also doesn't necessarily impact the crime rate. You can use a risk-based assessment without having to use money as your barometer of who gets out and who doesn't. Uh, Out of New York, we've got three pages on New York. So as I mentioned at the top of the podcast about Heather McDonald, New York crime is at 50-year lows. Uh, It's 25% black now. It's the largest black population anywhere in the country. It's a sanctuary city with 500,000 undocumented immigrants. Total population, 8.54 million residents. And out of all of those people, there were only 286 murders the entire year. That is astonishingly low. Uh, So essentially you have the... Crime has declined 27 straight years in general, but these are levels that are the lowest they've ever been since the 1950s. And remember, this is after they've ended stop and frisk, because stop and frisk was unconstitutional, even though people like Heather McDonald have insisted that stop and frisk was vital to crime reduction. Uh, also, a pair of officers had been suspended for ignoring a 911 call from a pregnant woman who was later found strangled to death. Uh, the NYPD officers had been assigned to touch base with a Tony Wells, 22, whose sister called police, claiming that the young mom was scared of her husband. Dispatched officers drove to Wells's home at Crown Heights, but never bothered to get out of the car to check on their welfare. She was later strangled by her husband in just a few hours. Also out of New York City, three more underage girls have come forward to claim that the flasher NYPD officer, Adam Fridson, exposed his genitals to them. Uh, We've talked about this guy before. So he's the one that uh, exposed himself to two kids. There were two sisters, a 7 and a 12-year-old, as they were going into a church. Uh, Well, it turns out he's also exposed himself to a 12-year-old girl and two 13-year-old girls at a bus stop on the Throgs Neck Expressway Service Road at Randall Avenue. Also in the New York Police Department, a Sergeant Thomas Balatoni, who makes $170,000 a year as the chauffeur for the police chief. That's it. He makes $170,000. He was caught shoplifting at Banana Republic. He was not arrested, but he has decided to quit his job. Uh, Out of White Plains, New York. Attorney General Beauregard and the Department of Justice have decided they're not going to bother filing civil rights charges against the killer cops who executed 60 year old Marine veteran Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. This is a really fucked up case. Back in 2011, back when I was in law school, uh, the audio and the video are on YouTube. If you feel compelled to go check them out, but essentially Chamberlain was a former Marine. He had heart condition. Uh, he had a life alert thing that he had set off accidentally. And he essentially didn't respond when the life alert person said, hey, are you okay? So they called police, which is normal. Everything up to that point is fine. Uh, But then when he finally responded, he said, look, I'm fine. I don't need the police here. The police showed up. He tells them repeatedly that he's okay, asks them to leave. Uh, The police don't do that. Chamberlain's niece, who lives downstairs in the same building, offered to help. The cops essentially told her to fuck off. Um, the cops insisted on coming in. At one point, the guy's like, just leave. And the officer goes, open the door. Kenny, I need to take a piss. Uh, go, the guy responds, go find a bathroom. I don't want to let you into my house. I didn't do anything wrong. Then after the uh, niece is declined, the guy says, sir, please leave me alone. I'm a sick old man. Chamberlain responds. We don't give a fuck. N- <laughs> police then took the hinges off of the door kicked the door in, tased the guy in the neck and the abdomen, uh, shot him with a beanbag round, then hit him with a baton, then shot him in the chest twice. Uh, so that, that's bad enough. But then for five months, the police refused to identify the officer who shot Chamberlain. So when the officer who killed him was finally identified as Anthony Corelli, Corelli insisted that Chamberlain had a knife and was trying to kill him. Well, then it came out that Corelli was in the uh, defendant in a lawsuit by two brothers claiming that he had beat them and called them both ragheads. Uh, Then the autopsy showed that Chamberlain wasn't even facing the officers when they shot him. Then the coroner said that Chamberlain couldn't even have been holding the knife. Uh, And they stuck by the story that this guy had the knife and was going to kill him this entire time. A state grand jury refused to indict, and now Attorney General Beauregard Uh, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III has said, Good job, Corelli. You, too, can get away with murder. Uh, Out of Nassau County, a guy named Ziggy has a Twitter thread on how he was nearly killed by police for buying shampoo. Uh, Apparently, the store owner called saying that he had a gun and was being a suspect in an armed robbery. Meanwhile, the dude's wearing headphones and has, uh, you know, I guess the volume turned up really loud, so he doesn't notice that there's an officer there with a gun drawn Uh, But we'll give you a link to the full Twitter thread. You should check it out. Uh, Out of Brockport. So don't let it be said that I don't report humorous news. Uh, In Brockport, New York, officers were called to deal with a squirrel in the house. And the guy's got his body cam running, and it's in HD. And you see the squirrel just, like, lunge straight for the officer's body cam. It's fucking hilarious. Uh, Luckily, the squirrel did not have a waistband, because if it did, it would have been shot. Uh, Out of North Carolina, in Richmond County correctional officer Erica Tamika Johnson has been indicted for attempted murder for trying to shoot at a priest. Uh, She shot a minister in the back. The off-duty officer is accused of attempting to kill 61-year-old Remus Davis in Richmond County southeast of Charlotte. According to the arrest warrant, Johnson shot Davis in the back twice and then attempted to shoot him in the head. Johnson works at the uh, Lanesboro Correctional Institution. She's worked in the prison system since 2008. In Durham, my hometown, so we've talked twice about the protests that happened across the street from my office. Go check episode 23 about kind of what happened that day, and then there's the follow-up in episode 45 where WRAL basically went through a whole bunch of public records and pieced together everything that happened from that morning. Uh, Remember you had this Klan rally that was supposed to happen, the sheriff was telling everyone who will listen that it was going to happen, and then it turned out it didn't happen but in the process, you had thousands of people show up and have a grand old time. Well, the sheriff sent a letter to the county commission uh, whining about the people who showed up and demanding, quote, simple and common sense measures to handle demonstrations. Uh, apparently, now bear in mind, this demonstration was peaceful. I was there, I put it on Periscope, there were plenty of other people that were there, but there were folks that had weapons because they were expecting the Klan to show up. So one person brought an axe, one had a gun, uh, one had a rifle, and in the letter, what the sheriff says is, quote, I hope never to see again such reckless disregard for human life during a purportedly peaceful demonstration. Now, a couple things here. One, this supposed reckless disregard for life didn't happen because the event was peaceful. Two, having weapons is against the law. You're not allowed to have weapons at a parade. That's against the state law. That is a state crime. People could have been arrested, theoretically, if law enforcement wanted to arrest people, but they chose not to, which was the smart thing to do because, again, it was a peaceful presentation. There is no need to get things all riled up. Uh, So instead, the sheriff is asking for new rules, new laws, new ways to give him uh, discretion on when they can arrest people, and the county manager's on board. He just says, fuck it. Okay, cool. We're going to do some things. So among the proposals is that you can't have a protest on county property or county grounds, which they seem to think, includes the sidewalk, which is not true under the Constitution, but it's neither here nor there. Uh, Unless you notify the county via its website within 48 hours of any event, quote, if the group will be 50 or more individuals or has the potential of 50 or more individuals. How the fuck am I going to know if 50 or more people are going to show up? That's problem number one. Two, how am I going to know that two days in advance, especially if the triggering event happens within that 48-hour window? Three, what is the distinction between 49 people who you don't have to give notice, and 50 people where you do. I mean, what is the public policy rationale for that? Is that extra 50th person suddenly a tremendous danger? But then they don't just stop there. There's also in the proposal a requirement that, quote, any flyers, posters, or other advertisements for an event on county property— Include a statement that reads, quote, the views and beliefs of this event do not necessarily reflect those of Durham County government. This is not a Durham County sponsored event. We call that compelled speech in First Amendment parlance. The government cannot compel you to speak. So that is going to be unconstitutional as well. But we're going through this process to willy nilly revise these rules. And it's fucking ridiculous. Uh, Out of Greensboro, the middle district of North Carolina, there's a judicial panel of uh, a district court judge and a two district court judges and a court of appeals judge sitting together reviewing our state legislative district maps because there were like 20 something racial gerrymanders out of 170 districts. They had appointed a special master to draw maps of their own. The legislature, of course, objected. There was a hearing today where the attorney for the Republican Party says, quote, We all know in North Carolina that sometimes race correlates with party, with political performance. There has been no evidence so far that what the state was doing was looking at race. That is from Phil Strack. Now, look, I like Phil. I worked with Phil back when I was in the Wake County GOP. He's an attorney with Ogletree Deacons. He's super smart. He was the parliamentarian for the party. As a former parliamentary procedure guy myself, I just respect the fuck out of him. That's not a thing you want to say to those judges in general. It just doesn't make sense because we talked at length about what we call the substance over form doctrine, the fact that the the law looks at the substance of what happened, not the particular forms that you give it. If the law prohibits racial gerrymandering and you find some other proxy variable that essentially does the exact same thing as race under the substance over form doctrine they're going to treat that other variable as race so what the fuck are you doing um so that is out of greensboro we'll give you a link i we'll see how the judges rule but i suspect that's not going to go well because that's just not an argument to make Uh, out of north dakota in williston there's been a glitch with video visitation surprise Uh, that has left inmates unable to get visitors for at least two months. Now, we've talked before, video visitation is a scam. It's a moneymaker for jails. They use it to save money in terms of not having to have the manpower there to handle the potential security risk of visitors. But then also, the video visitation companies give the jails kickbacks. They give them part of the money that they make off of these inmates. And it's just the government being fucking lazy. Uh, So they've been getting rid of in-person visitation to get these kickbacks from video visitation, and then magically the technology doesn't fucking work, because of course it doesn't. So that's out of North Dakota. In Ohio, out of Columbus, politicians are finally taking notice to a Reuters multi-part investigation on taser use in jails. Uh, There's a a multi-part series. If you haven't checked it out, you should. We've got links in the show notes to the prior podcast where we talked about other aspects of it. Uh, But from this latest piece, the story says, quote, in one video, Sergeant Michael Turner stunned a mentally ill inmate with a taser multiple times after the inmate defied an order to stand in his cell at Ohio's Franklin County Jail. In another, Turner fired the taser's electrified barbs into an inmate's chest after he refused to remove a piece of jewelry. In a third, he pulled the trigger five times on a handcuffed inmate who wouldn't sit on a bench. Each incident violated the jail's taser policy, and each was cited in a class action lawsuit the county settled that accused jail guards of sadistic and unconstitutional use of tasers from 2008 to 2010. Yet neither Turner nor any other deputies were disciplined. Instead, Turner was promoted to major. He is now commander of Franklin County Correction Center 2, the largest of the jail's two main facilities. So we fail up in America. That's how it works. Uh, So I'll give you a link to that. At a Craig Beach, Ohio, police chief Andrew Solomon has been federally indicted for sending nude photos of himself to a 16-year-old girl and raping her. According to court documents, Solomon is accused of having nude photos of the 16-year-old girl. The girl told someone that she lived with that she had sex with Solomon. The court records said the chief was using his police department's email address to communicate with the girl because he's a fucking idiot. Like, being a kitty diddler is bad enough, but... The court documents say police found nude photographs, including photos of male genitalia, in their email conversations. Solomon admitted to investigators that he received some, quote, inappropriate, unquote, photos of the girl. He said he sent her, quote, fake pictures, unquote, of male genitalia that he found on the Internet, uh, but then later admitted to sending the girl real pictures of himself. Uh, Authorities say Solomon apparently first encountered the girl in October while he was investigating an unruly child complaint. So that's... Fucking disgusting. Um, Out of Oregon. That's out of Ohio. Out of Oregon. In Washington County. uh, Police helped talk a suicidal person off a ledge. And it was on body cam. So don't let it be said I don't report good news. It turned out well. We'll give you a link to the Twitter. Out of Pennsylvania. The third rule of Fisk, there are no new stories, only new names and new jurisdictions. Just rewind about 20 seconds to that guy in Ohio. Uh, 40-year-old police chief Mike Diebold is being prosecuted for soliciting sex from a 14-year-old girl online. Now, give this guy credit. Rather than using his department email, he was smart enough to use an app called Kick K-I-K, uh, under the screen name Cute Cop For You. Uh, he went to a sheet to meet up with the kid and was greeted by investigators. The police chief was a former D.A.R.E. officer. So those are the police we send to schools to talk to school kids about not using drugs. So you'll notice this is a recurring theme. So not just the uh, Andrew Solomon in Craig Peach, Ohio, this guy in Leechburg. You also had uh, San Leandro, California cop Marco Becerra. He's the guy who resigned after he raped a kid. Uh, we talked about NYPD officer Adam Fritzen earlier in this podcast, the guy that keeps exposing himself to minors. Uh, You had NYPD sex crimes investigator Nicholas McAteer. He's the guy who spent his career committing sex crimes as he was supposedly investigating them. It's just a really common thing. So third rule of fisk all day long. Uh, Also out of Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, who is the super progressive defense attorney who got elected district attorney, uh, he's been sworn in. He gave a very heartfelt swearing in speech where he basically said to folks, we're going to trade in funding for jails and instead give you funding for schools. Also, in his first week on the job, he's fired 31 prosecutors including several of them who had been in the news for being corrupt as fuck. So that's interesting out of Philly. Also in Philadelphia, police officers have actually filed suit against their bosses, claiming that the Philly PD brass forced them to lie on paperwork to, quote, make the drugs go away. From the story, it says, quote, the Narcotics Bureau commanders... Told their officers to disobey the department's rules and illegally omit names, change locations, and modify other information on documents that are used as evidence during drug prosecutions if the arrestee is willing to become a snitch for the department. It actually says so an informant, but we call them snitches in the uh, industry. Out of Pittsburgh, the first rule of Fisk police will continue to do dumb shit, even when they're being recorded. Security camera from the Villa Real Pizzeria shows Pittsburgh police motorcycle cop Ronald Huff standing and talking with an employee and then the employee goes to the back the officer actually follows him uh, and they, basically it, this is all in surveillance video but essentially the officer randomly tases the guy in the restaurant for no apparent reason as a joke like they're actually trying to be funny about it they laugh giggly ha ha after the guy is like knocked to the fucking ground with the taser drops his glass of water and everything else Um, Well, of course, this is all on security camera video, as I mentioned. Well, then the police come up to not just this guy, but his police buddies, then come to the guy who owns the restaurant and say, hey, you know, you really should delete that video. We'd hate for something bad to happen. Well, to avoid any potential discipline, uh, the officer Huff has decided to retire while this investigation is pending, which means he's now not going to have that in his record and he can go get hired at another department without any issue. Out of Tennessee, uh, CJ Saramella and Lauren Crisset of Reason Magazine have an in-depth expose on how police in Tennessee and elsewhere are deliberately staging drug buys in drug-free school zones as a way of increasing the penalties. Uh, they start off with the story of Michael Goodrum. It says, "Quote, on July 9th of 2008, officers of the Columbia Tennessee Police Department arrested Michael Goodrum and charged him with possession of crack cocaine with intent to distribute in a drug-free school zone." But Michael Goodrum was not peddling dope to kids on the playground. He wasn't on school property and school wasn't in session. In fact, he wasn't within sight of the school. According to court testimony by the police who arrested him, the 40-year-old was sitting in a private residence at 10.30 p.m. when officers swept into the living room with a narcotics search warrant. Goodroom was ordered to the floor, and when an officer picked him up, the cop found a small bag of crack cocaine underneath him. Uh, so even though he's never been a felon before, was just visiting that particular house, uh, normally he's going to get eight years as it is. But because he was within 572 feet of a park and 872 feet of a school, roughly two blocks in either direction, that put him under the 1,000-foot radius for a drug-free school zone. So he ended up being sentenced to 15 years without the possibility of early release. In Tennessee, had he actually killed somebody, he would be out in less time because second-degree murder carries a 15-year sentence, but you can get out early in 13 years. Uh, out of Nashville, Tennesseans, again, third piece about state-level Congress critters. If you live in Tennessee, you can bring your gun to the new legislative building, but you cannot bring any handheld signs. Uh, the policy change that has been implemented for the new building, which Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally And House Speaker Beth Harwell approved expressly prohibits hand carried signs and signs on hand sticks because they, quote, represent a serious safety hazard. Uh, Also, out of Nashville, 51 year old Matthew Charles was sentenced for crack possession back in 1996. 216 grams got this guy 35 years in prison. So, this is the, we talk about the crack cocaine sentencing disparity. So, you gotta keep in mind, these are the same drug. The only difference is their molecular form, which indicates whether or not you're going to shoot it via injection or snort it or whatever else. But in terms of actual chemical formula, it's the exact same. Um, So this guy was jailed. He was a model inmate, model probationer when he was released. He got out early as part of Obama's reforms to the prison system. Uh, Volunteers at a food pantry every weekend like clockwork. Well, the U.S. Department of Justice, under Attorney General Beauregard, did not like the fact that this guy got out early. And so they appealed his decision, and the Circuit Court of Appeals agreed that this guy should not have been let out early and needs to go back to prison. So they've remanded the case to a district court judge who is going to sentence him again, and this guy is going to go back to jail for however much longer. It's thoroughly fucked up and it's a highlight of the utter absurdity of our criminal justice system when it comes to the war on drugs. So I was out of Tennessee, in Texas, in Bear County. We talked about this last Thursday with Dave and James. So a couple days before Christmas, police decided to summarily execute a woman who had been accused of stealing a car. Now, this is such crazy bullshit because someone called police, said she had stolen a car. There's no reference in any of the follow-up reporting to a stolen car actually being found. It's just a guy called 911, Gave a name and address. Police said, hey, let's go kill somebody. When the process of killing this woman, supposedly she was trapped in a closet with a gun at some point, but the officer allowed her to leave. Why? We don't know. She went to another home in the trailer park, supposedly tried to open the door. Officers repeatedly shot and killed her while she's on the deck of that particular trailer home. And in the process are such bad shots that they also shot and killed six-year-old Hispanic boy Cameron Prescott. So he was dead. He was visiting his father for Christmas, minding his own business. And because police are fucking kill-happy in Bear County, uh, he is dead as well. So the police chief promises that there's going to be a thorough investigation, but said, quote, all policies have been complied with. Well, guess what? It's time to change the fucking policies. If someone is trying to break into my house and there's a fairly high likelihood that I'm going to die if your deputies show up to try and save me, that's a fucking problem, period. Bear County, get your shit together. It's spelled Bexar, by the way. I don't know why the hell we pronounce it bear. Uh, out of Fort Worth, Police Sergeant Kenneth Pierce was responding to a domestic violence call uh, where he decided to punch the victim in the throat just for sport and have her tased. Uh, The victim, 29-year-old Dorche Morris, called 911, told a dispatcher that her boyfriend was at her apartment in a drunken rage and was vandalizing her car. Morris told the dispatcher she may have to stab the boyfriend to defend herself. Uh, Officer Maria Bayona arrived on the scene. Her partner took the boyfriend into custody. She's talking with Morris, asking her questions when Morris grew evasive and upset and was uncooperative. Uh, At some point is when Kenneth Pierce showed up as uh, Bayona is talking with Morris. So this is on video, first rule of fisk. Video from the incident shows Morris admitting to having a knife in her purse. She hands the purse over. She's annoyed, but she's calm. She's not, you know, out of hand. But Pierce and Bayona both insist they want her personal information. They want a driver's license. They want her ID. And she says no. And she says there's no point in calling y'all if y'all are going to do this. Because you don't have to provide ID when you're the victim of a crime. It's not required. There's nothing in the law that requires that to happen. Um, So she complains she's being treated like a suspect when she hadn't done anything wrong. Pierce tells her she needs to hand over her ID or she's going to jail. At this point, you can't really see what's going on because he grabs her. She pulls away. So basically, he just punches her straight in the throat. Uh, Morris, quote, immediately began to pull away from me in an attempt to break the grip, is what Pierce wrote in his report. Uh, So he decided to, quote, deliver one strike toward the brachial plexus area of her neck. So that's your throat, by the way. Um, Then has Bayona tase the girl as a way of trying to get her under his control. Again, bear in mind, she's the victim, was reporting something to the police. That's how they treated her. Uh, Pierce has been fired. Uh, In Bell County, Harker Heights Police Department savagely beat the shit out of Lee Dure, or Leah, I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name. So this is another case, just like with uh, Wilkerson in Alabama, where this first made the rounds on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, People sent me pictures that were gruesome as hell. Uh, And then it turns out attorney uh, Lee Merritt, who's done a lot of these police brutality cases, uh, actually is now she is his client. And he posted on Facebook a story about what happened. Basically, Leah was attending a New Year's Eve party with her boyfriend. They were both drunk. Uh, The boyfriend got injured. So they were at a local hospital where he was inside getting treated. She was asleep in the passenger side of the car. And an officer basically pulled her out of the car, claiming that she had been driving and switched over to the passenger seat to sleep, tried to charge her with DUI. Um, Turns out this girl didn't have a license, doesn't know how to drive, but that didn't stop him from beating the shit out of her anyway, and the pictures are pretty fucking gruesome. That is there at a Dallas County Farmers Branch police officer, Ken Johnson. He is a killer cop. He has been found guilty of killing 16 year old Jose Cruz. So, Johnson was off duty and in plain clothes back in March of 2016 when he saw two teenagers breaking into a Chevy Tahoe at his apartment complex. The teens took off in their own car, and Johnson pursued them in his SUV. He rammed their car off the road at Spring Valley Road and Marsh Lane. Hopped out of his car as it rolled into oncoming traffic and shot 16 times into the teen's car. Again, over a fucking alleged car theft. Uh, Jose Cruz was struck in the head, died at the scene. Edgar Rodriguez, who was also 16, was wounded but survived. He lost a finger. His ear had to be reconstructed. But other than that, he's still around. So, Johnson's sentencing hearing will actually be today, January 8th, is when that's supposed to happen. So, that's all out of Texas, out of Utah, in Ogden, 40 year old Tori Lee Castillo locked her two year old and five year old kids in the trunk of her car so that she could go shopping. And as a result of this insanity, uh, she gets one year of probation and 60 hours of community service. Now, I want you to contrast this with the 2015 case where 35-year-old Shanisha Taylor left her two-year-old in the car so that she could go to a job interview, and she got sentenced to a parenting class, a treatment program for domestic violence offenders, and 18 years of probation. I'll let you guess which one is white and which one is black. Uh, Out of Virginia in Alexandria, a jury has found former D.C. cop Nicholas Young guilty of trying to help ISIS. Uh, He has been this is the this is the crazy shit about the government. They know these bad cops are out there and they don't do anything about it. Young was under scrutiny by the FBI for six of the 13 years that he patrolled. He used his vacation time to join the civil war in Libya back in 2011 left the FBI wondering whether he fought with a terrorist group and watched Islamic State videos while he was on break. He was commended by one U.S. attorney's office for his work as a police officer, only to be put under grand jury investigation by another. This is the interesting wrinkle in this particular case. Quote, He is probably the first person convicted of backing the Islamic State to consider himself a conservative, venerate former Congressman Ron Paul, and expressed interest in joining the Sons of Confederate Veterans. But the paradox at the heart of the trial was Young's interest in both Islamic radicalism and Nazism. Young dressed up as an SS officer in World War II reenactments and had a tattoo on his arm celebrating his unit. He also collected literature advocating violent jihad and watched Islamic State videos. That's not really a contradiction, guys, because guess what? Both groups hate Jews. Think about that for a minute. So that guy's been convicted. Out of Wisconsin and Madison. Uh, University of Wisconsin at Madison police arrested a man accused of going into a women's restroom in a campus dorm and putting his phone under a restroom stall to take photographs. Uh, Justin T. Fahey was booked into the Dane County Jail on Tuesday and is charged with attempting to take photos depicting nudity and disorderly conduct. Uh, He explained to the police that there was a misunderstanding and he had mistakenly went into the wrong restroom. Officers didn't buy that excuse. Turns out they got search warrants, looked at his phone, and he had been in there for at least 14 minutes, and they found out that he was trying to delete pictures that he had taken. Uh, You will be shocked to find that this Fahey guy is, in fact, a police officer. He is a special agent with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Uh, So that is it for the United States state-by-state news. Every now and again, we do get stories from other countries, so we try to cover those. In Canada, out of Alberta, uh, Calgary judge Christine Eidsvik has thoughts on race relations. She was speaking at the University of uh, Calgary when she told the students, or the University of Alberta, I'm not sure which, I probably should have noted, whatever university is in Calgary, in the state of Alberta, in the country of Canada, apologies to my Canadian listeners. Uh, but as she's talking to the students, she explained to them that she feels uncomfortable when she walks into a courtroom, quote, full of big dark people. She also told them that she prefers being in her ivory tower, or she's removed from the riffraff. Uh, she apologized, saying, quote, I made a remark about my initial reaction walking into a judicial dispute resolution room, apparently that's what they call courtrooms in Canada, uh, that as soon as it came out of my mouth, I recognized was not appropriate and could be construed as insensitive to racial minorities. Well, yeah, it could be construed that way because it fucking is. I mean, if you're a judge and you walk in and you're uncomfortable by the dark people in your courtroom, that's a fucking problem because mass incarceration and targeting minorities happens in Canada just as much as it happens in the United States. She needs to resign from the bench because she can't Can't be a judge in that capacity if you got these biases towards people. Uh, Out of the United Kingdom in London, BuzzFeed News has a lengthy expose on what it's like being a woman in jail. And the gist of it is it's pretty fucked up. I mean, they don't really provide much by way of basic sanitation. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, one report in 2016 found that women in Sussex weren't offered the opportunity to speak to a female officer or given a feminine hygiene sanitary pack, despite forced custody policy specifically requiring it. Instead, the onus was on the detainee to proactively request one. Some police forces, including Lancashire, according to the 2016 report, have displayed CCTV footage from cells on screens in the booking in areas where a report describes, essentially, when you go to use the bathroom, it's on video. It's not pixelated, and it's shown in this booking-in area, so anyone who's even not an officer, if you're standing in the booking-in area, they can see you using the toilet, which is fucking gross. Uh, And then older police units, such as the one at Swansea, kept women in cells without sinks. Some women held by other forces are not even offered showers ahead of their court date, for which they might wait several days in a cell. All the while, if you're menstruating, you're bleeding on yourself, in essence, because they're not giving you these sanitation packs. Like, this is this is fucked up on a human rights basis, but you also got to keep in mind, when you're in jail, most of the time, you haven't been convicted yet. You have to actually go to court where you're presumed innocent. They have to find you guilty. If you look like a hot mess because you haven't bathed, if you smell terrible because you haven't bathed, that impacts your ability to get a fair trial. I mean, it just does. Whether it should or not, it does. And there's ample studies that show that it does. And it's just really fucked up in the United Kingdom. But that's not it. That's not all we've got. We've got another story out of London. Police have been coding their own special artificial intelligence to help identify kitty porn but they keep flagging sand dunes instead. From the story says, quote, the police force already leans on AI to help flag incriminating content on seized electronic devices using custom image recognition software to scan for pictures of drugs, guns, and money. But when it comes to nudity, it's unreliable. Sometimes it comes up with a desert and it thinks it's an indecent image or pornography. God, sorry, I promise you guys I'm not drunk. I don't know what's going on. Uh, sometimes it's an indecent image or pornography. Mark Stokes, the department's head of digital and electronics forensics, recently told The Telegraph. For some reason, lots of people have screensavers of deserts and it picks it up thinking it's a skin color. No shit. So, folks, that's going to do it for this extra long podcast of criminal justice fuckery. That is it. Uh, We still have, like I said, we still got like 30 more stories in my saved queue that I will insert over the next however long it is. We we may or may not do another bonus episode, probably not because these things have been so long time-wise that even though it's only the second week of January, we're already bumping up against our storage limits on our host, Blueberry. So we'll see. You'll get them eventually. I just can't guarantee when. But thank you for listening. I appreciate your patience, and on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all love you. Have a blessed week and I will talk to you next Monday. Take care.